From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Chronic kidney disease is a condition in which your kidneys can't clean the waste and excess fluids from the blood as well as healthy kidneys can. If you have chronic kidney disease, treatment is necessary to prevent kidney failure. On today's program, we'll learn about chronic kidney disease and treatment options from a Mayo Clinic expert. We take these cells from our abdominal fat and these cells we can inject back into the body and they tell the kidney or other organs that they need to wake up and get back to work and help heal that organ system. Also on the program, tips for avoiding blood clots during travel. And how letting your dog into the bedroom may affect your sleep. Uh oh. (laughs) All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 30 million people, which means 15% of the adults in the United States, have chronic or long-standing kidney disease. Chronic kidney disease, it's also known as CKD, usually results in the gradual loss of kidney function. And in case you didn't know, your kidneys filter wastes and excess fluids from your blood, and then that stuff is excreted in your urine. Stuff? Is that stuff, a medical The bad term? stuff. All right. When chronic kidney disease reaches an advanced stage, dangerous levels of fluid, electrolytes, which are salt and minerals, and wastes can build up in your body. Treatment for chronic kidney disease focuses on slowing the progression of the kidney damage, usually by controlling the underlying cause. Here to discuss CKD is Mayo Clinic nephrologist, Dr. LaTanya Hickson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hickson. It's great to meet you. It's great to meet you as well. Thank you for having me. Good to have you on the program, Dr. Hickson. 30 million people in this country have bad or poorly functioning kidneys? I know. It's a scary thought, honestly. But uh, that's the statistic. And unfortunately, in 2015, over 700,000 individuals had such bad kidney failure that they were classified as in-stage kidney failure and either required a kidney transplant or renal replacement therapy in the form of dialysis. What causes kidney disease? Yeah, why is this so prevalent? Yes, well, one, we're all getting older, sadly. (laughs) Not me. And Well, some of us are getting older. (laughs) How about that? And when we think about it, once we hit around the age of 40, we all lose about 1% of kidney function per year. So if we live to be 120, for sure, we're going to have chronic kidney disease. So some of us have chronic kidney disease just by the mere fact that we're getting a little bit older. And maybe we didn't start off with the healthiest kidneys when we were first born or in the early stages of life or we've had different injuries as we go along. But I don't want to miss the opportunity to say the most common causes of kidney failure are diabetes and hypertension. And of those over 700,000 individuals we talked about that had end-stage kidney disease, over 75% had either diabetes or high blood pressure as the cause of their kidney failure. Is it true that if you control your blood pressure, if you keep your your blood glucose under control, you can prevent kidney failure? Well, I wish it were that simple. Um, Some of us, unfortunately, are genetically predisposed in a way to have kidney failure. Now, maybe we are genetically predisposed and there's only that one additional hit that if we just could have laid off of that last 
piece of cake, you know, or those remaining 50 pounds that we gained over the course of life, then maybe we would not have gotten kidney failure. But unfortunately, due to diabetes, at least a third of those individuals may go on to develop kidney failure, whether they've potentially had perfect control of their diabetes or not. And that's the sad part about diabetes. Now, high blood pressure, I think that we can definitely make a case that if we knew that we had high blood pressure early on and we'd gone and sought medical care, that maybe we could have prevented some of that. Uh, As we were getting started, I said, when it reaches an advanced stage, you get dangerous levels of fluid, the electrolytes are out of whack, and the waste build up in your body. Can I feel all of those things happening? Do I just get really sick? Or how do I know that I have CKD? Yes. CKD is a very silent process in the beginning. And so as Dr. Shives pointed out, well, when we're going along and we're feeling perfect, we may not know really that we have these early stages of chronic kidney disease. Now, yes, the kidneys are such smart organs, okay? And they filter the blood and get rid of waste products and the extra fluid that's in our body that we need to get rid of. They take care of that for us without us worrying about it. When we develop more advanced stages of chronic kidney disease, we begin to notice that they're not doing their jobs. With certain kidney diseases, we may lose so much protein in our urine that when we go to the restroom, we it looks like we poured beer in the toilet. The foam that builds up from all the protein that's lost. So foamy urine yeah, is, is something to be right. concerned But it's definitely one of the questions we ask in certain forms of kidney disease. And for certain, when we think about the great job that the kidneys normally do of getting rid of all the fluid in our body that we don't need, once we start to gain a lot of water weight or fluid weight and we become short of breath, those are very classic signs that things have progressed. So is it easy to diagnose or is it, it can be, hmm. yes. And that's the nice thing about kidney disease, which is part of the reason why I went into the field of nephrology, really? is there are there's concrete evidence that there's something wrong with your kidneys usually. And that can be easily found out by a blood test, a simple blood test, and a simple urine test can give you the information. Um, you do a urinalysis uh, also, and, and can that help? So it's, it's basically two things, urinalysis and blood test, That's right? correct, yes. In the urine, we are looking for the amount of protein that we lose. So we have protein that do these essential jobs in our body, and they normally stay in the blood. But when the kidneys are damaged, the kidney becomes a little leaky. That filtering apparatus doesn't do its job. And then we begin to lose those important proteins into the urine. And if we do that urinalysis, we can look and see how much protein's in the urine. But we can also find out other little clues that tell a nephrologist or a physician or a healthcare provider that there's something wrong. You know, we have two kidneys, which I don't think anyone knows why we have two kidneys, but do you ever see a situation where one goes bad and the other one keeps working? Because people who have just one kidney live uh, have a normal life expectancy, yes, right? Yes, they do, particularly if they did a beautiful thing called kidney donation. <laughs> uh, but for sure, we can have one kidney that goes bad and one that is healthy. But I'll say that the times when that happens, there's usually a problem with the blood vessels that lead to the kidney and can make that one kidney have a problem. And that's generally called renovascular disease. Mostly we see that what's happening in one kidney ends up happening in the other kidney. 
Which blood test is it that tells you whether or not the kidneys are functioning Great well? question. The easiest test that I can tell you about is the serum creatinine. Serum creatinine. That's is right. That, and if you get a, a, a general physical exam, is that a test that you would normally get? I think everybody should have it. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, different societies have disagreed with the nephrology community and we're kind of disappointed about that. But yes, it's very easy and I think it's pretty darn cheap too. But it's a serum creatinine that gives you an understanding of how the kidneys are functioning. And not only that, there are beautiful equations that are available now that help calculate your age, your race, your sex or gender and can we can put all that information together and tell you what I'll say percentage uh, or what rate your kidneys are functioning at. And is it a situation where if it's diagnosed early, you can save the kidney, or is damage done, damage done? Uh, just as in life, uh, yes, yeah, sometimes damage is done, and that's all you can do. But what if we catch it early? What if there's an underlying cause? Let's say that you have inflammation in the kidneys from a glomerulonephritis process or vasculitis, and it hadn't gotten to the damaging stage where it's irreversible. Yes, if you'd gone into the doctor for that workup and gotten that one simple test and the urine test, then we'd be more likely to treat early. Or if you have diabetes or high blood pressure, then when you go into the doctor, if we see signs that things are moving in the wrong direction, then maybe we can make recommendations, which will certainly include lifestyle changes, too. All right. So the two most common causes of kidney, uh, chronic kidney failure in this country are diabetes, high blood pressure. Uh, to get your kidneys checked, you need a couple of tests, the urinalysis and the creatinine, blood creatinine. And I think the other important thing that I learned this segment is if you've got foam in the bowl, uh, after you relieve yourself, you may potentially have a problem. We're talking about chronic kidney disease with Mayo Clinic nephrologist, kidney specialist, Dr. LaTanya Hickson. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about chronic kidney disease, including treatment options, prevention, and Dr. LaTanya Hickson is going to tell us about her research. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. We are back talking with kidney specialist Dr. LaTanya Hickson about chronic kidney disease. We've talked about the most common causes. We've talked about how you make the diagnosis. We need to talk about treatment. What do you do about it? Well, I'm excited to talk about treatment because that's what we do every day. Now, treating chronic kidney disease is a little more complicated. We don't have a lot of things in our toolkit that we can really reverse kidney disease or the progression of it, unless it's due to some of those things we mentioned, like glomerulonephritis or vasculitis. Glomerulonephritis or vasculitis. Yes. Tell us exactly what you mean oh, by that. Oh, thank Sorry. you for giving me that opening. <laughs> yes. Now, those things that I mentioned are things that are basically inflammation in the kidney. Okay. And it could be due to an underlying systemic process like lupus, systemic lupus erythematosus. Or it could be due to vasculitis, like what we term anca vasculitides. And those things can also damage the kidney. And now, so that's inflammation of the blood vessel itself that supplies the kidney. Very good. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Orthopedic surgeons. I know. They do it all. Yeah, you got to very, very slowly. I'm from Iowa, too. <laughs> well, I'm from the Carolinas, so I love talking slow. Oh, good. <laughs> 
And in, in the clinic, what we do is recommend for sure healthy lifestyle. And so when we think about that, you know, most of us could afford to lose a few pounds. Now, you guys are perfect, but I'm with the rest of America that needs to lose a few more pounds, okay? We need to change our diets a bit and make sure we cut down some of the sodium and the other things that may exacerbate our blood pressure or make our blood pressure worse. If we smoke, sorry, but we this is another reason to give up smoking and then we need to exercise and do other things now in the clinic itself we will generally give individual patients medications that help reduce the stress on their kidneys and then we walk them through the process of understanding the implications of kidney disease and it's our job to be there and help them through it now in the first part of our interview you mentioned that's one of the reasons why i got into nephrology so tell us why did you Well, let's see. When I was in North Carolina doing my residency training, I was trying to figure out, did I want to be an orthopedic surgeon? No, that was not going to work out for me, okay? Yeah, look what happened. Just too short and not strong (laughs) enough, you know. Um, But I really, I was in my internal medicine residency, and I looked around and I thought, how can I make a difference? What disease process can I treat every day and I know that it's really there? And that's definitely the place for chronic kidney disease. Um, as an African-American individual, I also saw right there in North Carolina that there is there were disparate rates of individuals affected by kidney failure. And I wanted to make sure that I helped contribute to the community and contribute to medicine alike, which is what got me here at Mayo Clinic. I wanted to go to one of the best institutions to train to become a kidney specialist. And you can also do a fair bit of research here at Mayo Clinic. So tell us about uh, what are you researching Well, I'm really excited to talk about research in chronic kidney disease, and I am a part of an amazing group right here at Mayo Clinic that is investigating the regenerative aspects of kidney treatment. And our group uh, primarily assesses mesenchymal stem or mesenchymal stromal cells, and our goal is... So these are cells inside the kidney? Well, good point. Okay, so I should clarify. Now, these cells are adult stem cells. So we all have them. And what we do is we take these cells from our abdominal fat right underneath the skin around my belly button. And amazingly, we take these cells and we harvest them. And these cells we can inject back into the body for them to do good. And they basically tell the kidney or other organs systems that are impaired that they need to wake up and get back to work and help heal that organ system. Now, Mayo Clinic has a good number of trials. I believe there are over 12 clinical trials ongoing right now that from our regenerative medicine fields that are trying to do their best to repair organs that obviously can't do it on their own. And our goal is to do that in the next few years and take a look at how we can repair the diabetic kidney in terms of delaying the rate of progression of kidney failure. And your research is going to show that in the next few years? Well, we're going to begin our trials. Uh Gosh, I wish research were that quick to turn around. But no, our goal is to begin the clinical trials in the next few years. How fantastic. And I hope we get there sooner rather than later. But we're not there yet. So I want you to talk to us about dialysis. So someone has end-stage kidney failure. Uh, Their their, uh, kidneys have essentially completely quit working. A lot of these patients are diabetes. Some of them are diabetic. Some of them have high blood pressure. Tell us what their options are. Obviously, kidney transplant, uh, one. 
is an option, but you know there's a waiting list, and not everybody's a candidate. So what do you do if your kidneys? There are a lot of people alive who have um, kidneys that are non-functioning. Yes, uh, how do you are. keep them alive? And to, in 2015, over 400,000 individuals were utilizing renal replacement therapy, and that would be dialysis therapy, okay? Now, over 700,000 individuals had end-stage renal disease, as you pointed out. So what are the options for those people that are on dialysis? Some really amazing people that I've met over the years. The options consist of two things. One, the dialysis treatments can be done using the blood as the source, or using the peritoneal cavity or the peritoneal lining as the filtering apparatus. So that is a blood dialysis known as hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis, which is that abdomen that you spoke of. (laughs) And then we talk about where the dialysis is being performed. Are we doing the dialysis at home? And so those are home renal replacement therapies. Are we doing it in the facility or a center? So that's in-center dialysis. And so there are around three options that we generally talk about. The home hemodialysis, so that's home dialysis where we use blood, and we hook the individual up to the machine with some needles, generally in the arm or a catheter. Then there's home dialysis, which could be peritoneal dialysis. And this dialysis is kind of cool. You have a catheter that's placed in the abdomen, and there's fluid that bathes the insides of the abdomen, gets rid of the waste product, and then it basically can be flushed down the sink. And this whole treatment can be done while you sleep. I like that option, too. (laughs) And then, of course, there's in-center dialysis, which we can offer for everyone, whether they have the ability to do the dialysis treatments at home or they need more care. And there are wonderful people that staff those clinics that have a lot of fun with the patients there. And in-center dialysis is generally done three to four times a week over a three to four hour interval. But we're getting kind of fancy. We're doing peritoneal dialysis in center as well. And so there are more options around the country. Well, thank mm-hmm. goodness there are those options because yes. there are a lot of people who need them. How many people did you say every year in get two, dialysis? It varies, but say in 2015, around 120 to 140,000 individuals were newly diagnosed with end-stage renal disease, and right. they joined a whole pool of over 700,000 people that had end-stage renal disease or end-stage kidney failure. We hope you speed up your research. So I'm open so, too. To Thank you so much for the well wishes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nephrologist, kidney specialist, Dr. LaTanya Hickson, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you all. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn how to prevent blood clots during airplane travel. And later on in the program, should man's best friend be allowed in the bedroom? How dogs can affect our sleep. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Fermented foods are all the rage, but are they really healthy? Whenever we take what's a natural product, we do have to be aware there's good and bad potential. Mayo Clinic's Dr. Joseph Murray says fermented foods such as kimchi or the tea product called kombucha contain prebiotics that encourage the growth of good bugs, which may promote health and aid digestion. Which for people with some digestive complaints can help them feel better, maybe have a more regular bowel habit. 
But it's not to be underestimated. Some people don't tolerate it so well. These foods may help treat diarrhea, prevent and treat urinary tract, yeast and intestinal infections, help manage irritable bowel syndrome, and may shorten the severity of a cold or flu. We have a community of bugs that live in us and on us. Researchers continue to learn more about the benefits and risks of fermented foods. And in other news, need a way to reduce stress in your life? Mayo experts say exercise. Exercise in almost any form can act as a stress reliever. Being active can boost your feel-good endorphins and distract you from daily worries. Now again, any form of exercise, from aerobics to taking a quick walk to yoga, work. If you're not an athlete or even if you're out of shape, you can still make a little exercise go a long way towards stress management. Mayo experts say exercise should be part of your stress management plan. Why? Well, it increases your overall health and your sense of well-being, which puts more pep in your step every day. But exercise also has some direct stress-busting benefits. It pumps up your endorphins, it's meditation in motion, and it improves your mood. You can't beat those benefits, so get moving, even if it's only a little bit at first. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, blood clots, as you know, are gel-like clumps of blood that are beneficial. Mm-hmm. They're beneficial when they're in response to an injury or a cut or a laceration. They plug up the injured blood vessel and they stop the bleeding. But, you know, some blood clots form inside your veins without a good reason, and they don't dissolve naturally. And these can require medical attention, especially if they're in the legs or are in a more critical location like the lungs or the brain. Blood clots can sometimes form in the legs during air travel because passengers are immobile for long periods of time, often sitting in cramped spaces with little leg room. Oh, if only you'd be in first class all the time. <laughs> I know. I'm back there with you in the economy. Yep. Yeah. Yes, yeah, sometimes it okay. is referred to as economy class syndrome. The clinical term for this type of blood clot is deep vein thrombosis. And here to discuss is the director of the Travel and Tropical Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Rizwan Sohel. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sohel. It's good to see you again. Thank you. It's good to be back. Thanks for being here, Dr. Sohail. So a lot of us are a setup for a DVT or a deep, venous th- deep vein thrombosis when we travel. Tell us first what, what it is how, and how it happens. Well, sometimes due to prolonged immobility, we form uh, blood clots in the deep veins of the legs. And if time diagnosed or untreated, they can break off and then go into the lungs where they can block circulation in parts of the lung. And that is what we're really concerned about, not really just the clot in the legs, but traveling into the lungs and causing chest pain and shortness of breath. And it can kill you, right? Yes, it can definitely be life-threatening. Why is it that this happens more when you're traveling, or does it? Well, uh, travel, especially the air travel, uh, makes it sit at one place for a prolonged duration of time. And it's really the immobility, which is the risk factor for uh, deep vein thrombosis, uh, plus, people are exhausted when they travel, uh, they get dehydrated, they don't move around that much, they feel they're cramped into their economy class seats, and so that's why air travel puts you at high risk. Uh, plus, there are some data suggesting that due to the la- low air pressure during uh, cabin travel and uh, low oxygen level, makes your blood more thicker and more likely to clot. 
Um, are there some people who are more at risk than others? Yeah, there are a number of uh, defined risk factors for uh, deep vein thrombosis. These include age more than 50, uh, women who may be pregnant or using oral contraceptives. Yeah, um, now tell us why that is, because that's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, so oral contraceptives or hormone replacement therapy or certain chemotherapy drugs make the blood more viscous and thicker, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and that's more likely to clot. Similarly, patients who have history of heart failure or those who have a ma- major recent surgery or cancers are also at high risk of blood clots. And pregnant women. And pregnant women, especially during late during pregnancy or even after uh, six to eight weeks uh, after delivery as well, they continue to be at high risk. And isn't that partly because of, the, of the, the the fetus when it gets that large, it actually puts pressure on the on the large vein um, near the uh, fetus, so that it it makes it difficult for the blood to return from the legs. Absolutely. So pregnancy itself, due to hormonal changes, makes the blood more thicker and at risk of clotting. Plus, in addition, uh, immobility and poor circulation in the legs, as you mentioned, due to the presence of fetus. Uh, makes pregnant women at high risk of blood clots as well. And what about obesity? Uh, obesity is also a well-known uh, risk factor. Uh, so if, uh, and and I think it's also mostly related to immobility as well. Uh, uh, plus obesity itself is a metabolic syndrome. It makes blood more likely to clot as well. Who did we miss in the high-risk group? <laughs> Uh, pretty much everybody. Cancer patients? Uh, cancer patients, major surgery, uh, history of venous insufficiency, those who've had fractures, they're unlikely to move. No, venous insufficiency. So if I have varicose veins, does that put me at increased risk? Not just the superficial veins, but if the deep veins are incompetent, then definitely you would be at high risk for blood clots. Why, does ca- why do cancer patients have trouble with this? So uh, cancer itself... Uh, produces certain changes in the blood clotting mechanisms, makes blood more likely to clot. Mm. What about height? Does that have anything to do with it? Shorter people versus taller people? (laughs) So there was an interesting study from a World Health Organization where they reported that patients uh, or travelers uh, who are taller than 6 feet 3 are at high risk of blood clots. And it's we think it's because they have leg less, you know, leg room, they are more cramped uh, in the economy class and therefore more likely to form blood clots. Interestingly, uh, travelers who are shorter than uh, five feet three were also at high risk. And the theory behind that is that uh, their legs may not reach the ground. So the edges uh, of the seat may be putting undue pressure on the veins on the back of their knees, making the blood flow slow and more likely to clot. Is uh, is a patient, or rather, is a traveler more likely to experience deep vein thrombosis on a long flight or a short flight, or does it make any difference? Uh, the duration of flight definitely makes a difference. Uh, in general, the flights that are longer than four to five hours uh, double the risk of uh, blood clots, and the flights that are longer than 10 hours almost triple or quadruple the risk of uh, blood clot formation. All right, so don't go too far. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's talk about home. prevention. How do we prevent getting a blood clot? Well, there are a number of things people can do uh, during the air travel and before that. So during the travel, if you get to sit at the aisle seat, then obviously it's easier to move around and uh, keep yourself hydrated. 
Don't drink excessive amount of caffeine that leads to dehydration or alcohol use because it's both dehydration and then it makes you sleepy, so it's unlikely to move. Uh, stretch your legs, even if you're sitting, uh, lift your heels, rotate your heels so there's more blood flow. And that helps uh, return the blood back to the heart, which would help prevent the clots, huh? Exactly. Muscular action of, of whatever kind. So even if you're stuck in the middle seat, move your ankles, move your legs as much as you can. Absolutely. What about taking an aspirin? I mean, we a lot of people are taking aspirin to prevent uh, a clot in their coronary arteries, their heart arteries. Would it make sense to take an aspirin before you fly? So one would think so, but at least the studies that we have suggest that the aspirin does not really alter the risk of blood clot during air travel that much. The things that can be helpful before you travel is that uh, if you're in one of those high-risk categories that we talked about, you can go talk to your doctor. They may give you prescription for compressive stockings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so below knee compressive stockings are helpful. If you're already in blood thinner due to some high-risk factors, then check your blood test to make sure that your blood is thin enough uh, just the way your physician wants. Or if the patients are really high risk and they're not in blood thinner, then the doctor may prescribe an injection of a medicine called heparin that you give under the skin a couple of hours before you travel and then maybe the day after travel. All right, so the keys are to move if you can, particularly if you're in an aisle seat. If you're stuck in the middle, just kind of move your uh, legs and ankles around as much as you can. Hydrate and avoid alcohol and caffeine. Exactly. All right. We've been talking um, to Dr. Rizwan Sohail about how to prevent blood clots when you're traveling. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, could your canine companion be affecting your sleep? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Oh, how we love our canine companions. You do? <laughs> well, I don't have one, but yeah, everybody either. else does. Everyone around me does. Yeah. According to the American Veterinary Association, more than 40 million American households have dogs, and 63% of those consider their pets to be family. But should you let your four-legged friend sleep in the same room as you or in the same bed? A recent Mayo Clinic study looked at the effect that dogs have on the home sleep environment. Now, if you've got a dog, and especially if he or she is sleeping with you, it's information you may or you may not want to hear. (laughs) Joining us on the phone from Mayo Clinic in Arizona is one of the authors of the study, sleep medicine specialist, Dr. Lois Cron. Welcome to the program, Dr. Cron. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Dr. Cron, welcome to the program. Well, give us the news. Good idea to have your dog in bed with you or no? Well, um, having the dog in bed proves problematic. Uh But having the dog in the bedroom doesn't appear to change a person's sleep. So I think that there is good news and um, bad news, depending on your view of this. So is this a pretty common practice for people to actually have their dog in bed with them? I think it is. Um, one thing that we didn't look at in this study, but others have sort of um, pondered, is um, you know what kind of people will have their dog very close by at night, and people who, let's say, have a partner who's on the road, who's out of the house, um, someone who is single may be more inclined to say, I've got room in the bed, and I will have my dog there. So how was this study conducted? I mean, how did you, did you have people bring their dogs to the hospital, to the sleep lab, or how did you determine this? Well, we used um, 
uh, mobile technology. So for years, we've had a device in sleep medicine where a person wears a motion detector, and this is a medical-grade device that is an established and accepted tool. Um, However, we learned that there is a a similar motion detector that a dog can wear on its collar. It uses the same technology, so we then could monitor both the person and the dog and compare the results. And so when you're saying that it affects sleep, the dog is moving around and then that makes the human either wake up or it just affects their sleep, it wakes them up a little bit? So we could, we could look at the movement and we could see sometimes, you know, what, who moved first, the person or the dog, <laughs> when the dog was on the bed and sort of, you know, have a sense of who uh, was uh, disturbing the other. And it did appear that, um, you know, at the beginning and end of the night, the um, people tended to go to bed second and the dog stopped moving first. But during the night, if the dog was on the bed, the dog um, would move and then the person would move. Did it make any difference with regard to the size of the dog? Well, I wish we'd had a a large enough group. Uh, We had dogs of different sizes. um, And, you know, I think it's pretty common sense. A big dog in a small bed is going to be more problem, mm-hmm. but we couldn't actually correlate that with the 40 participants in this study. Let's back it up even further. Maybe people who are bad or poor sleepers are dog owners. <laughs> is that a fact? No, Could that, that is be? that a correlation that we can make based on your study? <laughs> there are many possibilities. Um, you know, there are people who say that they want a dog for um, security purposes and that they feel more um, comfortable when a dog is guarding them. That You know, going back centuries... That's one reason why, you know, people, you know, chose to have dogs for that function. Dr. Shives and I are both farm kids, or at least from rural settings, and so the fact of having a dog in the house is almost insane in my (laughs) estimation. Uh, But it feels like it has definitely changed over the decades, that now um, being a pet owner, especially a dog owner, and the, the dogs are almost starting to behave like people in some instances. Well, and I think part of this might be um, the urbanization. You know, if somebody lives in a city, you know, for example, New York City, they may not even have a backyard. So the dog is going to be in their apartment, and then when the dog goes out, it's on a leash going for a walk. Um, That apartment may be very small. So there may not be many options for where a dog would sleep in a situation like that. So so what you found was that there's no question in your mind that a dog interferes with a person's sleep. If the dog is on the bed, and if the dog is off the bed, then there does not seem to be a major impact. Now, I'm sure a young puppy or an aging dog with health issues, you know, there would be exceptions to that, but the average dog, take, you know, like the ones we had in our study, seemed to sleep well, and the people slept well when the dog was in the bedroom, but not on the bed. Did you find find any dogs that snored or had sleep apnea? In this study, we didn't, but, you know, previous reports are, and we we do know that dogs who have very sort of flat faces, like bulldogs, are known to have sleep apnea and sometimes have been used to help us understand the sleep apnea that people have by um, just studying how it affects dogs. 
I'm just imagining all my friends who are dog owners hearing this and going, oh, not at my house. Is So this is on average. It's fair to say that uh, if you sleep with a dog on your bed, you're not getting as, as good a night's sleep. But are there some people who were getting better sleep when their dog was with them? Yes, I think there are, you know, always a range of experiences. And if it's a well-behaved dog who really has been trained to sleep, let's say, at the foot of the bed, the bed is large, the um, there's plenty of space, the person doesn't have any allergies, the dog is well-bathed and doesn't, you know, doesn't track in dirt. Not, you know, there are lots of, of factors that come into play with having a dog nearby. But if none of those apply... Uh, then maybe this can work. But I would just say be careful to think it through <laughs> and don't just assume that this is a good idea. What are your recommendations then for having dogs in the bedroom or on, on the bed? Well, I think the, having a dog on the bed is a bit too, too much. Uh, but having a well-behaved dog who has been taught that when the lights go out, it's time to be quiet and lie still, perhaps have a dog bed that it can curl up on and that's its spot. I'm not sure that that represents the problem that we had previously thought it was. But being on the bed, that's a little too much. You know, maybe next one that studied Dr. Cron is that you could compare sleeping with your dog in the bed versus sleeping with a spouse that oh snores. Boy. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let someone else do that line of research. Very wise. Now, somebody's going to have to, somebody is going to have to be the one who breaks this to the dogs, and I don't know who who that's going to be. <laughs> not going to be us. They better, hopefully they're not listening this week. <laughs> All right, sleep specialist Dr. Lois Cron. She's uh, with us from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Thanks so much. Great study. Good to talk to you. Thanks for sharing all the information. Well, thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You know, Dr. Shives, we have over 170 affiliates now. Do you remember when we got our second affiliate? You know, I don't, but that's not surprising. (laughs) It's been so long ago. But what is funny about it is it used to be that it was just... Us talking to southeastern Minnesota, and now this show goes all around the world. Yeah, and even outside the United States, I understand. (laughs) And we have just a moment to send a special shout-out to some of our newest affiliates that have signed on to the Mayo Clinic News Network. Sounds good to me. Big thanks to KCOM AM in Dallas, Texas. KIIK AM in Waynesville, Missouri. And KGUM AM all the way from Hangatana, Guam. Is that how you pronounce it? I have no idea. (laughs) Hagaton. I wish I was there. Yeah. We're glad to have our newest stations on board and happy holidays. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. 
please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.